Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Megan Kelly, welcome to the Megan Kelly Show. We are now just hours away from Election Day, and we are gearing up for a big week. First, wanted to let you know that in addition to our regular shows, we will also be live on election night from 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM Triumph Channel 111. And for the first time ever, also, we will be live on YouTube. That's going to be so fun. We're going to bring you the results as they come in an instant unfiltered reaction with some of our friends who will be stopping by a cast of all stars, including Dennis Prager, Barry Weiss, David Sachs, Camille Foster, Emily Jashinsky, Ryan Grimm and Larry Elder. Um, not to mention, we've got all the polls covered closely by friends from Real Clear Politics, from National Review. Everything that you want will be right here in depth and with some personality, unlike what you're going to find <laughs> most of the other places. This will be our first election night where I'll be on air talking about the results while being allowed to curse and drink. <laughs> Maybe just curse. Uh, so anything can happen. Before we get to tomorrow night, though, there's a lot of news to get to right now, including the very latest on why NBC News, quote, expired. OK, this is a new this is a first for me in reporting. I've never heard that they expired their Friday reporting on the Paul Pelosi attack with absolutely no real explanation on why they just humiliated one of their long term reporters who's gone totally silent now on Twitter. Is he going to be disciplined? What are they going to do if he was so wrong? It's so disgustingly off base. What's going to happen to him? Or is this just a case of them bending the knee to some angry staffer in Pelosi's office because they're not being specific about what exactly was wrong with the report that they, quote, expired? Now, in the wake of this, The New York Times is claiming I am spreading misinformation. What did I do? What was so wrong? I did it right in front of you. You're the people I spread it to, allegedly. Quote, I, I this is how I did it. I, quote, raised doubts that all facts were being disclosed end quote, on this attack. I'm not kidding. <laughs> In New York Times, we call that being a journalist. You should try it. It could work out really well for you. <laughs> Unbelievable. And I'm not the only person being smeared uh, as a misinformation purveyor for asking facts, literally just asking facts. At no point have I suggested a conspiracy theory in the Paul Pelosi case. I said the police appear to have egg on their face and that there appear to be more facts yet to be disclosed. That's what Miguel did in his piece on Friday, which has been, quote, expired. So we'll get into that. We're going to do a deep dive into this story during the show, which you don't want to miss. First, though, we are talking with two women looking to take down two top Democratic lawmakers tomorrow night. They were once considered long shots. Now they have a real shot. Tudor Dixon is running against against Governor Gretchen Whitmer. 
in Michigan, and Tiffany Smiley. You've heard her name mentioned over and over again by pundits on this show as a comer, you know, somebody you got to watch. She is looking to defeat longtime Washington State Senator Patty Murray. And we begin right there with Tiffany Smiley. Tiffany, welcome to the show. Thank you, Megan. Good to be on with you. Yeah, it's great to see you again. Many moons ago, I believe I interviewed (laughs) you and your husband on Fox. Yes. Amazing. It's good to see you again, Megan. You've been very busy in the in that time. Uh, your husband is a veteran. His story is very moving. Your advocacy of his recovery after a devastating injury uh, while fighting for our country is inspirational. And so let's just start broad base for people who don't know you and haven't been paying much attention to Washington State. What makes you think you can take down someone like Patty Murray, who is, I don't know how many times she's been reelected by the Democrats. She's 72. She's like about to take sort of senior status status on all these important committees. If she gets reelected, that can make citizens say, well, yeah, we want her. We want the power for Washington state. What makes you think you can do it? Yeah, well, if power really mattered and seniority really mattered, then why did she not stand up for us and fight for us? You know, why was my husband given a VA system that wasn't ready or prepared to give him every tool that he needed to be successful? You know, I saw firsthand the roadblocks that government will put up in front of our heroes and their families, the red tape and the bureaucratic government systems. So Senator Murray is a part of that system. I was 11 years old when she was first elected, um, and we are not in a better place in every room I go into, I ask them, you know, are you in a better place? They say, no, we are worse off. Um, If seniority mattered, then uh, we would be in a much better place. And it's clear in every room I go into across Washington state, we are packing out rooms. Hundreds of people are coming out to hear our message. Washington state does not need seniority. What we need is motivation and principle. And the voters of Washington state know that that is exactly what I will bring to the halls of Congress when they send me there. Mm. Um, People want real results. Policy cannot be based on intentions. It has to be based on positive impact in people's lives. It has to be based on results. We're connecting on common ground with voters all across Washington state. Patty Murray's been non-existent, Megan. Like she's not around. She's been phoning it in thinking she just had a hall pass. Um, you know, to to go to D.C. And truly, all she does is rubber stamp vote, uh, go along to get along. That, that's what who to, she is. Um, yeah. Let me let, let me join. So, so to what extent? I mean, Washington state, Seattle in particular, has been facing a crime wave like much of the rest yeah. of the nation. So and I realize you've been running running like most Republicans on a, t- on a tough on crime platform, unlike Senator Murray. But what could what can a senator do to help crime in Washington state? I can understand if you ran for governor, if you ran for mayor of Seattle, what can a senator do? Yeah, well, senator can do a lot. Number one is lead. Um, and, you know, Senator Murray's dangerous rhetoric is, is not helpful to our police officers here in Washington state. She went, actually went on the Senate floor June of 2020 and called for funds to be diverted away from our police force. And then mm-hmm. she disappeared and went into hiding as crime ravished our cities all across Washington state. So what I can do at the federal level um, is I will ensure that our police officers in Washington state have access to federal grants for $5,000 retention and recruiting bonuses. So we retain and recruit good cops here in Washington state. Another component that's important to address in this, Megan, as well, is our southern border, Um, because we talk about crime. 
Um, you t- we need to talk about drugs because that's the impetus of a lot of the crime that's going on, especially in Washington state. We have a fentanyl crisis across the state. So we need to secure our border, ensure that our border patrol agents and law enforcement agencies down at the border have every resource that they need, invest in technology and secure our border, stop the flow of fentanyl from coming into Washington state and killing our kids. Mm. There, Seattle has persistently high crime. It's dark. It's not the numbers are not good. Yes. Four thousand three hundred seventy nine cases of violent crime so far this year, slowly encroaching on last year's total of five thousand four hundred seven. Forty two homicides in twenty twenty two. In all of twenty twenty one, there were forty two. So you guys are on track to surpass the homicide record. Um, and then there was a notable murder causing headlines as of August 2nd. And I wonder whether this has played a significant role at all in your messaging, a disabled 66 year old being beaten to death with a metal pole in Seattle shown on footage. Um, and this was allegedly by a serial criminal who had been freed by a local judge on a separate felony charge just eight days earlier. This is caught a lot of attention. Those of us over here on the East Coast and in the media, I mean, I think we think of Seattle as just far left, you know, let's go softer on criminals kind of people. But this case is turning a lot of heads. Yes, you're exactly right, Megan. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was um, at an event in Seattle with Democrats and independents. um, And they said their number one issue is their safety. They do not feel safe. Um, and that's exactly why they're voting for me. Many are saying you're the first Republican that I've ever voted for. Um, homicide rates were so high just a few months ago that our hospitals had, were in a crisis of blood shortage. And so our campaign actually hosted a two day blood drive to help bolster that supply of life saving, um, you know, blood supplements. So there is a crisis here. Senator Murray doesn't talk about it. In fact, um, I filmed an ad on crime and I was standing in a parking lot where there were actual murders. Um, I had to have security with me when I was filming this ad. Senator Murray came back and mocked me, um, basically said, there's no crime here. I'm getting a cup of coffee. Everything's fine in our communities. And this is when everything started to backfire really in her campaign because she fails to address this issue. She fails to be a leader and stand with our law enforcement and, and protect truly protect the people of Washington state. Um, Mm. per capita, we have the least amount of police officers per thousand people. We're in a very, very dangerous place. I'm talking to people all over Washington state, you know, women just going to lunch at noon and getting violently assaulted, um, and not enough police officers to even respond or even, um, track down or, you know, investigate the case. So there's, there's real issues on the ground. I always say these are not Democrat or Republican issues. These are American issues. This is about the livelihood and safety of our communities, the bedrock of of truly who we are as a country. It's law and order. Yeah. No, the crime rate is driving Democrats all across the country to go to the polls tomorrow uh, for Republicans, according to the polls, including in New York State, the state from which I hail. Um, In that one case I just mentioned with this disabled 66 year old, the man who did it, uh, who is accused was arrested, as I said, eight days later, released by a judge without bail um, on a separate charge of felony harassment after he allegedly threatened to kill a local city worker. And in a case that we've kind of seen in different forms time after time, the Superior Court judge released him on his own recognizance and asked him not to commit any more crime. Uh, This is via the Daily Mail on the Seattle Police Crime Dashboard. Unbelievable. Asked him not to commit any more crime and uh, ignored the prosecutor's request for $10,000 in bail. The guy did not 
honor his commitment not to commit any more crime. And now a 66 year old disabled person was beaten to death. Um, I wonder what this is going to do, because it, for me, as I understand it from over here, it all comes down to Seattle for you. You need to get a certain percentage. It's sort of like New York City. Um, you know, here, like without a certain percentage of the New York City liberal votes, Lee Zeldin's not going to beat Kathy Hochul. Without a certain percentage of the Seattle votes, you can't beat Patty Murray, no matter how well you do in the suburbs and the other areas of Washington state. And this happened in Seattle, I guess. Um, But you haven't been doing a lot of campaigning in Seattle. And uh, according to the Seattle Times, they say that's going to be, quote, a huge mistake. So do you feel like you should have done more to get Seattle's votes? Well, I don't know what they're talking about because I have been in Seattle quite often. I just mentioned the two-day blood drive that our campaign hosted to bolster the blood supply um, for a local hospital in downtown Seattle. I've actually been in um, a lot of the homeless encampments in Seattle. I visited the Soto homeless encampment um, in the heart of Seattle. Um, one of the largest and was helping clean up dirty needles. I was talking with the folks there. And what's interesting is I was meeting with a group that's non-political group. They're just taking action to help clean up the streets. And when I was there in that homeless encampment, there was another woman there helping clean up and do harm reduction. And she yelled my name from across the encampment and came over. And she said, Tiffany Smiley. And I said, yes, you know, I don't know what attack ads you're watching, but I'm really I'm really a nice person. She said, no, 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 no. I'm so happy to be here with you. She said, I have always voted Democrat. I've always voted for Patty Murray. And this year I'm voting for you. And I'm honored. Mm -hmm. It was was a real special moment because here we are in the heart of Seattle in the face of destruction where we're allowing people to poison themselves to death. And here was a Democrat and Republican shaking hands, coming together, believing in something better for our city and for our state. That's exactly why we are going to win this race, Megan. There is no place that I will not go to talk to the voters of Washington State. And I have been doing that for 18 months. Talk numbers um, and with the me. message what, what percentage all of the, vote, the ground. What percentage of the vote do you think you need to get for those of us who are going to be watching you tomorrow night and reporting on this? Yeah. What percentage of the vote do you think you need to get in Seattle? Because I'll tell you this. The Seattle Times says if you're a Republican, you have to get close to 40 percent in liberal King County, which is where they are. Otherwise, you're toast. And they point out that um, in the primary, uh, which was held just on August 2nd, you got just 19 percent of the King County vote and all Republican candidates combined scored only 24 percent. So they're saying, you know, mm, doesn't look that good. You got to drive up those numbers because there's just not enough available vote outside of King County to bring you over the top. What, what, how would you put the numbers? Yeah, well, I'll say that, uh, you know, the primary numbers, that's uh, after Senator Murray went negative and started attacking me in June, two months prior to the primary. Um, and there were over 12 people on the ballot. Um, so I, I'm not looking at those numbers. I'm focused on connecting with the voters. So um, I, you know, I, I'm not, I would say, in King County to win this election. Um, and that's not that's not a hard number. Um, we're campaigning hard in Snohomish and Pierce County as well, um, connecting with the voters across the ground. And, and we're right there. I mean, the enthusiasm on the ground is real. And um, that's what I'm going to continue to focus on. I'm, I'm ending my race exactly how I started it. And it's connecting directly with the voters of Washington State. Um, all over this great state. We're barnstorming from one corner to the next. Every single vote will count in this election. Um, and so we're mm. encouraging people to get out and vote. The enthusiasm is real, Megan. 
What are they saying to you? I mean, honestly, like the Democrat, yeah. I, I, I know what Republicans care about, but like the Democrats who are considering you, like what is bothering them? Why, why would they abandon her? Crime. Uh, that's, that's number one that I hear, um, especially in Seattle and Snohomish and Pierce County, the crime issue, the education of our children, um, in addition to the cost of living and gas prices, we have some of the highest gas prices in the country. Um, we have a fentanyl crisis that that is brought up in every single room. Again, these aren't Democrat or Republican issues. They're American. In fact, a woman at the event that I just ran in um, on my bus to this interview, a woman stopped me outside the bus and she said, I've always voted for Patty Murray. I'm so honored to be voting for you because they want hope. You know, we have got to deliver results. Senator Murray is not talking about any of these issues or campaigning on any of these issues. She's not talking about the crime that's affecting our families every single day. So that's where we're meeting on common ground um, is addressing uh, the crime crisis, fentanyl crisis. Um, and, you know, Senator Murray was the champion for mandates, lockdown, shutdowns. She ran as the mom in tennis shoes um, who's going to fight for our children's education. And she abandoned our children in Washington state. In a CNN interview, she basically doubled down, said she has no regrets with how they handled the pandemic. They followed the science. Um, that was a slap in the face to every parent across Washington state. So we are the campaign for parents. And, you know, when you're talking about our kids, it doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican. You want someone who will go fight uh, for your kids to ensure that they have competitive quality education. Um, I'm a mom of three young boys who were in the public school system during the pandemic. Senator Murray failed to address the issues. Um, you know, she says she's, you know, put all this money into the American Rescue Plan. And my my answer back to her was, if all of this was so great, Senator Murray, why is it not working? Mm. Um, you know, and, can I ask you a question? Because yeah. Third Way, which is a, a sort of a left leaning, but not far left uh, think tank, they did a poll of voters to try to figure out what's going wrong on the Democratic side. They're, you know, they're, they're Democrats. They want the Democrats to win. And they were trying to take an honest look at why it doesn't look like they're going to. And one of the things that they concluded uh, in their polling is, and I quote, this is on education. Um, they say, worse, even in areas where Democrats are trusted more, it is not clear that voters are sold on Democrats' approach or ability to get things done. Jarringly, in a split test between which party will fund the education system and which will improve the education system, Democrats lead by 19 points on funding, but they trail by one point on actually improving it. And just to be behind by one point for the Democrats on, you know, getting voters approval on education is actually a seismic shift. The voters used to just always go with Democrats when it came to education. It was sort of like climate change, abortion and education, net net, the, the electorate would favor Dems. But for them to be saying this Democratic group taking a hard look, saying when it comes to the way we're actually going to do education, we now favor Republicans. I mean, I think that what you're touching on is being reflected by these polls. Even the Democrat moms, because you're running as a new mom in town, even the Democrat moms have had it. Yes, yes, you're exactly right. And I've been connecting with them over the last 18 months. You know, especially uh, parents with special needs kids, there's actually a lawsuit into the Seattle school district um, because those kids had no interaction for months. I mean, this is exactly why we will win this race, because we have solutions versus just money. We don't have a money problem. We have a solutions problem. And, and Megan, I think it's also important to note that, and I get cheers all over Washington State for this, um, is that we have to de decrease the stigma that college is for everyone. 
um, and expose our kids, especially here in Washington State, to trades at a much younger age because there are multiple pathways to the American dream. And we need to be ensuring that our children have access to competitive quality educations that will give them a hand up in this country. Senator Murray does not address this issue. She funds the system. She's a go along to get along. And the parents of Washington state know that. Hmm. All right. Uh, Donald Trump lost uh, Washington state to Joe Biden by 20 points, 58 to 38. And so what role, if any, does Trump play in this election? Um, He's in the news today for hitting Ron DeSantis as Ron DeSanctimonious. Some Republicans are angry about that. Um, Where do you stand on Donald Trump and whether you want him to be the party nominee in 2024? You know, this campaign here in Washington State, we will shock the country because I have been so successful in this whole campaign because over the last 18 months, there's one endorsement that I'm focused on. And that's the voters of Washington State. And they know that, Um, you know, Senator Murray has spent millions of dollars to use a picture of, of me and the president and smear me across Washington State. And it's really backfiring on her because she she doesn't show the voters the picture of me and her. And she doesn't want the voters to hear her talking about me on the Senate floor in 2018, saying what an incredible, effective advocate I am. Um, but that's who I am. And the voters of Washington State know that. I will work with anyone to deliver results. When when I met with the president, I was fighting for every Democrat, Republican, and independent service member and their family. That's exactly what I will do for Washington State. And we are surging in the polls because my main focus is the voters of Washington State and delivering results. Hmm. Would you back Trump if you were the party nominee? I mean, would you would you back him as the nominee? I'm just trying to win in Washington State, and that's what I'm focused on: bringing our country together. Um, and moving forward. Um, That is clearly what we need here in Washington state. And that is my main focus. We need to retire Patty Murray. Tiffany, um, all the best to you and to your husband too, for his honorable service. And I know the whole family serves and you've been through a lot. His injury is absolutely devastating, but he continued on. They wanted you to uh, sign his retirement papers while he was still in the hospital. You refused. Um, And I believe he became the first serving blind active duty uh, member, right? Thanks to your yeah. refusal to sign those papers after all that. Yes, absolutely. Um, that's what I tell everyone across Washington to say. That's exactly who I am. Um, I was the first person to not sign that paperwork um, in, you know, to transition Scotty into the VA. I believed in a better purpose. I believed in his life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And that's what mm-hmm. I'm fighting for, for all of Washington state. Well, uh, you guys are, you truly are American patriots and it's, it's a pleasure to meet you. Good luck tomorrow. Thank you, Megan. Appreciate you having me on. All the best. And we will be right back with Tudor Dixon, GOP candidate in Michigan. And I just got back from a weekend in Detroit. And let me tell you, everyone was talking about Tudor Dixon. That's next. The Megan Kelly Show is supported by Grand Canyon University. Founded in 1949, GCU is a private Christian university that's dedicated to delivering an affordable and transformative higher education. Their vibrant campus is located in beautiful Phoenix, Arizona, and according to Niche.com, ranked a top 25 best campus in the USA. As of June 2023, GCU offers 330 academic programs, with over 270 of them online, allowing you the freedom to earn your degree on your time from wherever you are. At GCU, your degree, whether it's a bachelor's, master's, or doctorate, integrates the free market system and a welcoming Christian worldview. Learn more about GCU's programs, competitive tuition rates, 
and scholarship offers from your university counselor. They're part of the supportive graduation team that takes a personalized approach to helping you achieve your academic goals, walking alongside you every step of the way. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University, private, Christian, affordable. For more info or to enroll, visit gcu.edu. Our next guest is Tudor Dixon, Republican candidate in the Michigan governor race. In the months leading up to the election, there was a wide polling gap between Tudor and her and the current governor, Gretchen Whitmer. But in the last few weeks, the gap has narrowed considerably, leaving the competitors neck and neck. It's now at the point where real clear politics is actually suggesting this is going to be a GOP pickup. Wow. What a reversal that would be. Tudor Dixon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, that must like I know you've been working hard, but you've been way outspent. And your opponent is the uh, you know clear favorite, according to the polls up until recently. So you must have been taken aback when you saw now you're the projected likely winner uh, by real clear politics. What did you make of it? Well, we've been watching the excitement grow on the ground. We think that the movement of people that have decided they don't want Gretchen Whitmer back in office is growing and growing. Parents are more and more upset that the education system is failing in the state of Michigan. So over time, I'm not surprised. She did come out with a lot of money. They have so much money, it's crazy. She's come out with over $25 million in attack ads. I think that her spend through the end will be closer to $50 million in attack ads. And people oh said God. that there was really no way to overcome it. But it, it's been interesting because I think what happened is that there was a lot of anger around surrounding who Gretchen Whitmer was and, and her policies. But people didn't know who the alternative was. So she spent all of that money and that increased my name ID to over 90 percent in the state. <sighs> then we got to have the two debates and 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 what she defined me as people really got to see, well, that's not actually who she is. When we see her debate, we understand what her policies are. We understand who she is. And that just really changed the trajectory of the race. So I almost credit Gretchen Whitmer with getting me where I am. <laughs> Abortion, abortion, abortion. I mean, it was everywhere. I was in Detroit this whole weekend with some friends and Prop 3, Prop 3, Prop 3, Prop 3. Um, it was all over the place. And as I understand Prop 3, this is basically, you know, we could if the voters want to, we can just kick it back to the Roe versus Wade standard on abortion. If if the voters want to write that into Michigan law and you said, if that's what the voters want to do, I'm not going to mess with it. You know, I, I will I will accept the voters decision. This is not how you've been portrayed by your opponents. Barack Obama came out and said, you're the Governor Whitmer's uh, opponent, you, um, that that you think politicians had the right idea uh, back in 1931. I mean, she probably thinks if she watched The Handmaid's Tale, she's thinking, well, what's the problem? (laughs) No, Obama said. This is a forced rapes, forced sterilizations during the Republican primary. Uh, Dixon had praised the law and said saving the life of the mother should be the only exception. So he's saying your earlier position certainly sounded more extreme than Prop uh, 3 would allow. So what do you make of Obama suggesting you were you were big time in favor of what you saw in Handmaid's Tale? Yeah, when you have to bring Barack Obama into the city of Detroit to try to campaign there, you know you have a problem getting out your base. Now we see them in this desperate mode of attacking Republicans for things that really have nothing to do with policy whatsoever. And it's interesting that you bring this up because 
There is Prop 3 on the ballot. It is really extreme. It's abortion up to the moment of birth. You don't have to be a doctor to have an abort to, to perform an abortion. It takes away parental consent for a minor wanting to have an abortion. And if you botch the abortion, whether you are a doctor or not, you are legally immune to any recourse from the patient or from the patient's family if you do something terrible. So it is the most extreme proposal. The only other two places in the world that have something like this are China and North Korea. But the more interesting part about this is that Michigan has already had a judge that has ruled in this matter and said there will be no ban on abortion because that would be unconstitutional. So we're already at Roe. That's where we are right now in the state of Michigan without anybody having to vote on this extreme ballot measure, without the governor weighing in. And the governor won't weigh in because this has been decided in the courts. But it's still what she's running on, which tells you she has nothing to run on because she's been in government for 20 years. Governor for four of those has done nothing for the state of Michigan to grow economic development. We are losing automotive day by day. You see more automotive shops starting up in Ohio and Indiana and Kentucky and Tennessee and North Carolina, but not in Michigan. She knows that she's losing automotive. That's our legacy industry. And she doesn't want to talk about that. She doesn't want to talk about the fact that the schools are now in the bottom 10 in the nation and she hasn't done anything to get our kids back on track after COVID, after the lockdowns. She lied in the debate, said our schools were only locked down for three months. Parents are angry. I'll get to that one so second. I, I do want to get you to weigh in on that. Barack Obama campaigning for her on something that has nothing to do. And my goodness, to come out and insult me in that way, boy, I mean, it's almost a compliment that he has nothing else to say. Yeah. Can't handmaid's tell. Like they use that against Amy Coney Barrett, too, because of her Catholicism. I'm like, OK, um, Wait, but I did hear you criticize Prop 3 quite strongly in there. And I had heard you say before um, that you there are, quote, no laws that I will decide not to follow if that is what the people want. So you will uphold Prop 3 if Michiganders vote for it. Absolutely. I am not Gretchen Whitmer. She has come out and said there are laws that I will pick and choose what to follow. If that is what the people vote for, that's what they vote for. This is our process, our system of government. We have to respect the system. The system is that if you put a proposal on the ballot and people vote for it, the governor then, and especially this is a constitution change. The governor doesn't get to say, you know what, I'm not going to follow the constitution in this area. If the people vote for this, then absolutely. That's what I will uphold. That is what I'm being elected to do. Okay. How about um, if the people vote for Joe Biden, you'll accept that he's the legitimate winner of the state of Michigan because you've been a little waffly on that. Did he win Michigan fairly? I've said that once an election is certified, that is our president. And I have said that he is our president. I don't like the fact that our secretary of state, you know, she in Michigan, it was kind of unique. She ended up having a judge come out and say two of the things she did in the election were unlawful. So she changed the rules right before, just weeks before the election. And, and she changed it so that our signature match was not you didn't have to have the same strength in the signature match. She also sent absentee ballot applications to every person in the state on the taxpayer dime, which she legally wasn't allowed to do. So I've said, look, there's a lot of reasons people question it when you see the secretary of state break the law during the election. So, of course, people are going to say we want her to run a lawful election. And if she does that, then we won't have a problem. But we have a lot of people on the ground. We feel confident in this election. We know people are watching her now and a judge is not going to allow her to get away with changing the rules without that going through the proper channels. Mm -hmm. What about I, I mentioned this um, to Tiffany Smiley, but Donald Trump out there was out there this weekend taking a shot at Ron DeSantis, calling him Ron DeSanctimonious. Some Republicans thought it was out of line. What did you make of it? 
You know, right now we want everybody focused on these midterms. I really do. I want people to look at the midterms and say, this is the election that we have this week. It is key that we get Republicans in. So that my focus is there. I want everybody's focus to be there. You want the Trump, you want the Trump supporters, you want the DeSantis supporters, and you want the Tudor Dixon supporters more than anybody. Fair enough. Um, Let's talk about crime. Uh, Crime in Michigan is a problem, just like it is in virtually all the other states. Um, What do you think you can do differently? than what Gretchen Whitmer has done. Well, Gretchen Whitmer's record on crime is to, first of all, she came into office and sure her goal was to raise taxes. So she wanted to raise the gas tax by 45 cents a gallon. And when she didn't get that through the legislature, she decided to cut secondary road funding for sheriffs. And so we know that it, right off the bat, she was cutting funding put to police. She also vetoed funding for corrections officers. So we, we so desperately need help in our corrections department right now. But she decided to veto funding there as well. Her history is to take money away from policing, but also marching with folks that had those defund the police signs. She marched with those folks. She also came out and said she supports the spirit of defund the police. This Mm. has been catastrophic for the state of Michigan. We currently have four of the 20 most dangerous cities in the country. They, Barack Obama, when he was here, kind of joked about crime. He was in Detroit joking about the fact that this happened and we should probably blame Trump for this. But think about the optics of that. You are standing in the second most violent city in the country joking about crime. The people of Michigan don't think that this is funny. They realize that she has taken her support away from the police. In the last couple of weeks, she's come out and said, no, no, I, I do support the police, of course, because she sees an election in the future. But we have heard from police across the state saying, we just can't keep people in the position because they are too nervous that they're either going to get arrested or they're going to get killed on the job in the state of Michigan. And they don't have the support from the chief executive officer. So we know that that has caused us to have a lack of folks in the police force. That's a huge problem. There was an article a few weeks ago that said this year we have lost a police officer a day in the city of Detroit leaving the force because it's just a a position where they don't feel they're honored. They don't feel they're supported. So the opportunity to create safe communities is wide open in the state of Michigan. It's going to take funding. We want to put a billion new dollars into policing to recruit and retain police to bring honor back to the position, to bring people up out of their communities and rise them up into the police force once again. And then I believe that we will be able to combat some of these issues that we have. Even our local crime labs are telling me if we could put a little bit more focus on what we're doing in these labs, we would be able to prevent a lot more crime. We need to. We are um, fifth in the nation for rapes per capita. We've got to get more protection under sex crimes. We've also got to face the opioid epidemic in a different way. Mm, Sensing a theme here as I listen to you and your fellow candidates. Um, COVID is the biggie after abortion in Michigan, I think, for a lot of Republican voters, especially. She was the lockdown queen. And now she's denying it. Now she's really engaging in some revisionist history. You mentioned it a second ago and I said we'd get to it. Here's the soundbite of her at your October 25th debate trying to I'll tell the audience this is this is my factual correction on her trying to minimize what she did with schools in Michigan uh, during the covid period. Here it is. We've also had some historic challenges over the last few years, I think, to put it lightly. You know, Mrs. Dixon says that I kept students out longer than any other state. That's just not true. I worked closely with my Republican and Democratic governors, and kids were out for three months. 
Were they? No. And that was, you know, I was shocked by that. As I've traveled across the state, so many parents have said to me, it wasn't just shocking for us. Our kids were in the room and they had an audible gasp saying we weren't out of school for three months. I've had kids at rallies. One of them yesterday in the morning yelled out, I was out for eight months or nine months. Another kid yelled out, I was out for a year and a half. So we have anywhere from really nine months to two years that kids were out of school. Ann Arbor, Flint and Detroit All three cities still had schools out in the beginning of 2022. So we have a significant amount of learning loss in the state of Michigan. But it's not even that she lied about it. It's that smug smile, the laugh beforehand, acting like this didn't happen. And I think it really took people back to all those days when Gretchen Whitmer would come out. We would be waiting to hear what she was going to take away from us that day, if we were going to get any freedoms or liberties back. And she would come out and just speak to us in such a condescending manner. In the middle of the pandemic, she came out one day and she said, don't go to Ohio to get your hair done. If you want to get your hair done, then Google how to cut your own hair. I mean, just talking to people like this and the, and the, just the audacity of saying, if you cross the border into Ohio, then you're going to bring COVID back here. Well, why do people in Ohio think it's okay to have salons open? She crushed, crushed our salons She killed our restaurants. Our restaurants were closed longer than any other state. Eight months, 3,000 restaurants gone right off the bat. We're still losing restaurants every single day because people can't come back from these policies. And now she's saying, well, that didn't happen. Well, it did happen. And the people who suffered from it know full well that she's not telling the truth about that. She Here's just a couple of facts for the audience. Um, Schools in Detroit and Grand Rapids remain closed for most of the 2020-21 school year. All right. That's the next year after the spring of COVID, the whole next year. Uh, while students at Ann Arbor and Flint entered 2022 with remote instruction, Governor Whitmer uh, rebuffed calls from the state Republicans to require Michigan school districts to offer an in-person learning option, at least for K-5 through students. She wouldn't do it. During the 2020 through 2021 school year, Ann Arbor offered in-person instruction a mere 11% of the time, according to the data analytics company Burbio. So, I mean, and by the way, Lansing was closed more than Ann Arbor uh, and Kalamazoo students learned via Zoom all year. So it really is bold. And as the mother of young school children myself, I find it outrageous that she's trying to like defend your record, stick to the facts, defend your record. Tell us why you thought that was OK. But she's trying to change the record. And by the way, she was also pro masking. She did. The state did not lift the recommended school mask mandate until February 2022. Uh, can I just ask you one other thing about the covid thing? She's a Cuomo. She's somebody who ordered covid positive patients into nursing homes. Uh, despite the obvious risks of doing that, that were called to the attention of these sitting governors at the time. It's not like they had no idea what might happen to the elderly if they did it. Is that an issue there? Because, I mean, in New York, that helped lead to the downfall of our governor, Cuomo. That's why Kathy Hochul's the governor now. In Michigan, it doesn't seem to have been such a big deal. No, and that's this has been a frustration that the media has not hit her harder on this because this is something that I came out and talked about in the debate too. She did get a few questions on that afterward, and she has doubled down on this lie because she lied about that as well. She said, oh, I didn't force COVID positive patients into nursing homes. Well, she did. In fact, when Governor Cuomo backed off of that, she doubled down and she kept putting people in. A third of our deaths were seniors from nursing homes. It was outrageous, the policy 
policies that she had. But now it's even more outrageous that, like you said, why isn't she coming out and defending this or saying, you know, I talked to the experts and they said this. Instead, she's saying, I didn't do that, which is completely shocking and outrageous. But we have this leftist media in Michigan that isn't saying, wait a minute, you definitely did do this. We have the numbers. In fact, they tried to alter what they considered long-term care and nursing facilities so that the numbers would look a lot better than they actually were. And when we had an outside auditor come in and do the actual numbers, they were much higher than even what the Whitmer administration was willing to put out. And she won't talk about it. Now, to this day, she is lying about that policy and saying she didn't do it at all. We lived through it. My grandmother was locked into a nursing home. The bizarre thing was you couldn't go see your family members in a nursing home, even if you had a negative test and they had a negative test. You were only allowed into a nursing home if you were positive for COVID-19. It was outrageous Mm. and it caused way too many deaths. Yeah. You know what? The difference is with all due respect to uh, the GOP messaging, you didn't have Janice Dean there. Janice Dean, my pal at Fox News, whose both of her in-laws were killed, uh, were they they died of COVID in New York State nursing homes um, around the time of this order by Governor Cuomo. And she was on them like a dog with a bone and was really the person who d- changed the conversation in New York about it. And there wasn't such a famous person in Michigan. It's sad. You know, you shouldn't need a famous person to have two dead relatives. Right. Well, I will say that we have one man, one journalist here, Charlie LaDuff, who pushed really hard to get that out. And Janice Dean did share a lot of his stuff, a lot of his reporting, a lot of his research. So we are grateful to Janice Dean for doing that. Good. Me too. Yeah, I love her. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about Colbert for a minute, because we played this on Friday. It was just so nasty and typically just uncharitable of him. You got out there and called attention to a Democrat who would come up to you and said, I'm a lifelong Democrat, but I'm getting ready to vote for you, um, in particular because of the weird sexualization of children books that we're seeing it, that literally the Democrats call this a conspiracy theory. This is yet another conspiracy theory The the Republican parents or the independent minded parents or the Democrat parents who are like, like, why are you sexualizing my kid in elementary school? For the love of God, keep the books. Remember when we were in school with like, like Winnie the Pooh or maybe like Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe. But you did not have this stuff. Um, he basically called you a liar in the following clip. I'll play it. It's not three. Dixon's not the only one worried about this issue. So is this guy she totally made up. I had a gentleman come up to me just a few nights ago and he said, I found content in my school library describing how to have sex to my son. I went to the Democrats and I said, I cannot believe that this is in there. Okay. (laughs) Fine. That happened. But even if it did, if someone found a book they didn't like at a school library, why would they go to the Democrats? That's like saying, excuse me, is this Chuck Schumer's office? I didn't like the finale of House of the Dragon. Also, this natural peanut butter is way too oily when it's in the cupboard, but it gets too hard when it's in the fridge. I'm voting Republican. Good day, sir. Then, for reasons all her own, Dixon continued. What these parents are talking about are not textbooks that will help children learn about themselves. These are books that are describing to children how to have sex. She's right. We looked it up, and there are a lot of classic children's books teaching kids about doing it. There's where the wild things bone. (laughs) If you give a mouse some nookie and green eggs and butt stuff. Well, it turns out you were telling the truth. And the man, Khalil Othman, has spoken out saying, I am very real. I am the Democrat who went to Tudor Dixon and a simple Google search would have revealed me to you. Um, I want to give you an update. Stephen Colbert 
quote, apologized for the error on his show in the snarkiest way possible. Here's a little bit of this on, uh, I think, Thursday or Friday night. Therefore, I, Stephen Colbert, acknowledge that you exist and ask that you forgive me. He goes on to say, if this person, and he means me, did his due diligence and started researching or had his team do a little bit of research of who's this person who attended Dixon's rally, they will be able to find my name right away, easy on social media, just Google it. Okay, fair enough. But I will point out that Dixon never said your name. So what am I supposed to search for? All she said was, I had a gentleman come up to me and he said, I found content in my school library describing how to have sex to my son. <laughs> he says that should be enough. So let's, uh, let's Google some keywords from that sentence. This guy claimed to be a Democratic politician, but switched after he lost his primary and packed up his toys and went off in a huff to support an election-denying, transphobic, COVID-19 conspiracy theorist. What a wonderful example for all of our children. By the way, fella, if you didn't know that about Tudor Dixon before you supported her, you should Google it. Hmm. What do you make of his apology? Uh, you know, this is actually great because we have so many people saying this is the elitist left that is coming out and belittling parents who say they're concerned about this stuff. I'm a mom of four girls. I'm concerned about this too. Khalil and I have bonded over this and it's been very interesting to see a community. He said to me, you know, I was told the, the Republicans don't want me at their rallies, but I bravely left and, and came to your rally. And he said, you talked about all the things I cared about. And I said, you know, it's funny because we were told that your community didn't want us to come in. Here is a Muslim American who is saying, at this point, I'm putting aside everything else. This is not a partisan thing. This is about him and me fighting for our kids. He gets it. I get it. We're, we are going to fight for our kids and we're bringing people along with us that the Democrats just thought that they always had. But now- so we're talking about things that matter so deeply to but our in the hearts, time we have left because we're, we're up against a hard break. Let me ask you, what, what's your message to Stephen Colbert? What's he not getting? You are not understanding the people of the, the country. You're not understanding the heartbeat of America right now. And that is to make sure that our kids are protected, that they have a future, that they have safe communities. When you belittle parents who are concerned about their child's safety, no matter what the safety issue is, you are losing people for your own party and we welcome them to ours. Mm. All right. Prediction for what's going to happen tomorrow? There's a lot of energy on the ground. You probably hear the rally in the background right now. We think we're going to have a big red wave in Michigan. Wow. We will be watching and reporting on it all. Thank you so much for being here, Tudor Dixon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We, we yeah. loved it. <laughs> all right. We'll be right back with much, much more. We got lots to cover, including that NBC retracted reporter expired like it died, like it died at cause of natural death. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Oh, joy. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, 
even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash Megan. The Paul Pelosi story took a strange turn on Friday morning when NBC's Today Show revealed new details about what took place right before the assault. And then NBC expired the video, making it no longer available to view without much of an explanation. Our own executive producer of this show, Steve Krakauer, uh, has got another job where he writes a a newsletter, which I love and I highly recommend to all of you, called Fourth Watch. And he took a deep dive into what went down and is here to help explain it. Steve, thanks for being on the show. (laughs) Hey, Megan, anytime. Absolutely. Yes, my my side gig. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. So, you set it up in the news uh, letter very nicely. You talk about how, OK, the Democrats dispatched of this story in the media very nicely. January 6th. <laughs> this was January 6th, part two, despite the fact that the guy believed in Jesus. He was Jesus for a year. And in Little Fairies, they were like, no, Trump can Trump caused it. January 6th. Right. It's like they had dispatched right. of this. Of course. Yes. They, they, the focus was not on the, the blogs about how he's communicating with fairies and he has to build a, a wooden you know, uh, space to get to get, communicate with his fairies. No, it was focused on certain blog posts which had to do with election integrity, election fraud, COVID, some of the other, you know, the QAnon talking points. And, and they said, OK, well, that's what it is. Right wing political violence again uh, and and move on. You know, that, and that really was how the story was for about six days all the way up and until just, Friday just- morning. Just to underscore it for our our audience, as opposed to a homeless guy on drugs who is reportedly in the country illegally, thanks to California being a sanctuary state and San Fran being a sanctuary city, breaks into a home and yet another evidence of crime run run rampant in San Francisco. That's the other possible narrative, right? Like, so that one, no, they dispatched of that and they settled on Jan 6th, uh, Republican messaging and we're good. Okay, great. But then nasty little reporters like yours truly and others started to ask more questions like, well, it doesn't make sense. Like we said on our show last Monday, why would the police open up? Why would Paul Pelosi open up the door and look at the police officers and the police officers are standing there and the defendant is like, all good. And they're just standing there having a convo. And then they started arguing over the hammer. And then the police jumped in. They The guy hurt Paul Pelosi right in front of the cops, which jumped out at us as odd. And we said, this smells funny and we want more facts. Others went further and jumped into full conspiracy theory, which we did not. But the 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 blowback has been no questions should be asked. None. So we'll get to that in one second. Enter NBC, which is also a conspiracy theorist, as it turns out, because one of their very well-respected and trusted correspondents did what? Yeah. Miguel Almaguer uh, on Friday morning on the Today Show, a very prominent perch. This was not, you know, OAN or something that, that this was going on. It was on the Today Show talking to Craig Melvin, gave a report on, quote, new details that he had learned from several sources uh, on what happened when police arrived at the Pelosi residence. And he he did reveal, I mean, we, we're going to, we've got a sada on it, but he's, he revealed some very interesting new information, not jumping to conclusions and notably also making it very clear that the attack did, did happen. Police witnessed 
witnessed an attack. Pelosi, when it was you know hit in the head with the hammer by Depap, it was all all of that is true. But the question is, what were these odd circumstances that happened, and some new also timeline questions as well uh, that he put out there on Friday morning? It started blowing up because the Today Show tweeted it because they put it on their website. Mm-hmm. It was it was a story that you know as I, I would imagine anyone would be proud of because it was new details on a very important story that's that's in the news. Mm-hmm. He's California based and thus presumably had the connections too to break such news. Here right. is just a little bit of the now expired report. After a knock and announce, the front door was opened by Mr. Pelosi. The 82-year-old did not immediately declare an emergency or tried to leave his home, but instead began walking several feet back into the foyer toward the assailant and away from police. It's unclear if the 82-year-old was already injured or what his mental state was, say sources. According to court documents, when the officer asked what was going on, defendant smiled and and said everything's good but instantaneously a struggle ensued as police clearly saw david depap strike paul pelosi in the head with a hammer investigators have previously said pelosi did not know depap when the 42 year old broke into his home why pelosi didn't try to flee or tell responding officers he was in distress is unclear fear takes over fear freezes people law enforcement officials tell us the bottom line here is this was a terrifying situation. We still don't know exactly what unfolded between Mr. Pelosi and the suspect for the 30 minutes they were alone inside that house before police arrived. Officials who were investigating this matter would not go into further details about these new details. You point out, Steve, in your in your newsletter, that timeline is important. Yes. So the timeline, we know that the the phone call to the police took place at 2.23 a.m. and we know police arrived at 2.31 a.m. We didn't really previously know when the supposed intruder went into the house. We now know that it occurred, I guess, at 2.01 a.m. So there was a now 22-minute period where we know that there was interactions between Pelosi and the intruder before the 911 call took place. That's not something that had previously been that delineated before uh, before this report. Mm-hmm. And we were all, look, those of us who are curious journalists, had been asking questions like, and you outlined these in your piece as well, how was Pelosi able to call 911 in the first place? Why did the assault only happen after the police arrived, which is what we were asking last week? How was Pelosi able to open the door for police while being essentially held hostage? Why wasn't there a security system with an alarm that went off after the glass broke at the back door when it was opened at 2 a.m., instantly alerting to the police to a break in? I would add, why and how was he able to w- leave the bathroom that he went in to call the police as well? Why didn't he run into uh, the arms of the cops when they opened when he opened the door and he saw police? Why didn't he run into their arms? You know, they were right there. They have guns like all these are good questions. And San Fran PD has been like, you're not getting the body cam uh, footage. You're not getting security cam footage uh, and really has been holding the cards close to the vest. Yeah, exactly. And that last point, the one about why did he, when he opened the door, I mean, that was really, I think, the most eye-opening part of Miguel's report. Why didn't he, once the police opened the door, because we now know Pelosi himself opened the door for the police. Why didn't he just say, I'm being held hostage here or run away? We don't know. And that was what was raised in the report. And that is, as we, as you've mentioned a couple of times, that is what 
essentially, we think, caused NBC to, quote, expire this video, not just delete the tweet that they had put out from the Today Show, but to literally remove it from their website to where now when you go to that link, it says this video has been expired, which is okay, but it's it's worse than very that. rare. As you, point, as you point out in the newsletter, it gets worse than that because not only did they delete it, and I said this, Janice Dean and I were actually talking about this over the weekend. She's a star of Today's show. Um, I was saying what's what's weird about it is normally if you realize you've made a mistake in a report at NBC, you would post here is how we were wrong. We apologize for, you know, misstating the following facts. We got it wrong. And here's a full clarification. They didn't do that. They did. They just said it wasn't up to NBC's reporting standards. What does that mean? That sounds a lot to me as a reporter, like Nancy Pelosi's office called and yelled at them and they bent the knee. Right. That's that's what you would say. That's how you would cover it. Um, So other reporters called NBC, including you, to try to get an explanation. And as your newsletter makes clear, you say they're basically they tried to release a little to the inquiring reporters and then they tried to launder information through willing reporters like The Washington Post to try to get out more damaging information about their own report. Exactly right. The the you, as you mentioned, the editor's note said it did not go up to reporting standard. The quote that was given an NBC source, which I got, which the Washington Post, which CNN got, is that a source for the story, a key source, the main source, was deemed quote unreliable. Unreliable is a really interesting word because I pressed NBC multiple times. What was inaccurate? Was anything inaccurate? And it was very easy for you to say the report was inaccurate in this source statement. They notably did not do that, only that the source was unreliable and that the report did not meet reporting standards. So if if there was anything wrong at all in the story, why didn't they just say that in the actual, you know, in any of these these venues that they could have? Instead, as as you mentioned, in the Washington Post in particular, there's all of these unquoted, unattributed explanations about, well, there were lots of inaccuracies that people think, well, well, what were they? Why, why doesn't anyone say that if that's the case? They're, no, they're not going on the record. And I checked again this morning to say anything was inaccurate at this point. And the reporter has gone completely quiet as well. Yeah. And and Paul Farhi, who wrote it up in Washington Post, clearly being given some background information on what a shitty reporter Miguel is, right, because they're throwing their reporter under the bus. He got it wrong. The things they won't say publicly, they're kind of like it appears to be leaking to um, Paul Farhi of The Washington Post. He asked the question, is is he going to be disciplined? Good question. If he's this bad, if he screwed up this badly on a story of this magnitude, let's see, what are they going to do to Miguel? Well, and and of course they they haven't answered that that either yet. They haven't answered any of the other questions, and and you have to imagine some of this is is the timing. Uh, you know, obviously the election is tomorrow. Uh, I don't think that this is a story that NBC wants to be paying a lot of attention to from any of their angles right now because the election is 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 what is they're trying to focus on, and and that's unfortunate because I, I think that eventually we'll we'll find out more of this about the story. If at the very minimum we find out what was wrong about Miguel's piece, you know, what what was it? Just let's let's find out why was it expired from the website. Site, that's not going to be happening anytime soon. It doesn't seem. And uh, and and even despite all this, so you think like this is a, a good reason to ask questions about what else is there? Why maybe the police, maybe it's it, it, as I kind of floated in there, maybe what yes. happened is that the police are trying to kind of spin this because obviously they didn't yes. do their job that great because they they actually witnessed the assault before the assault ever happened. That's not great either. And, and the report sort of raises doubt and gives them a little bit of deniability of, oh, well, we didn't really know it was the Pelosi's house. We didn't really know exactly. it was this big scene. Maybe that's part of the story. 
we don't know any of that. And now everything just gets painted as, quote, misinformation for even even daring to ask why we don't know more about this, the circumstances here. This is what I was trying to ask last week. How the I said explicitly the, the SFPD has egg on its face because it was standing there within feet of these guys when the guy raised the hammer and and slammed Paul Pelosi in the head requiring brain surgery. So that should not happen with two police officers standing within arm's length of the of the assailant and the victim. So why weren't they releasing the body cam footage and so on? These are the questions that we were asking on this show. What does that get you? It gets you labeled a misinformation artist by The New York Times, which instead of asking questions about this, trying to get more info, decided to do it to do a big piece that hit I think today, called How Republicans Fed a Misinformation Loop About the Pelosi Attack. Uh, They say within hours of the brutal attack, activists and media outlets on the right began circulating groundless claims, nearly all of them sinister and many homophobic, casting doubt on what had happened. So first of all, fuck you, New York Times, for suggesting there was anything sinister or homophobic about what we said. (laughs) We said the San Francisco PD has egg on its face. So you can pound sand. Second of all, here's what I and several others, not just me. Here's what my alleged sin was. And I quote, raised doubts that all facts were being disclosed. (laughs) Steve, is this what the New York Times has become? This is the only way they get to their their 21 elected officials and prominent media figures is by including things like asking questions about, hey, maybe we don't know all the facts and including that grouping that in with people that, yeah, sure, legitimately spread what what appears to be conspiracy theories. You know, this was staged. This was like a false flag attack. Those are apples and oranges, obviously. And and yes, the New York Times is just trying to paint anything that is, is even a remote amount of skepticism as somehow misinformation that is so damaging to the credibility of the New York Times that it you know they, I don't even think they get it I don't even think they get that people see this and think what are they even talking about it doesn't make any sense right Ray, Ray, again it's not just me several others on here c- c- committed the same sin Michael uh Pete Hegseth is one raised doubts that all facts were being disclosed I remember back in the day when most reporters would approach stories like this, especially involving an elite hall of power like the Pelosi household or the couple and say, all right, powerful people, rich people, SFPD, they don't want to be embarrassed. Someone's spinning me. Someone's spinning me. Right. The police. How about we just don't take the police department's word for things? I mean, I, we've seen that in multiple stories, a lot of times from places like The New York Times that would say, oh, yeah, the New York or the uh, the police department would spin for their own narrative. That's essentially what we, we were doing as well in the, in this uh, last week. That's now apparently misinformation. Honestly, like I, I, maybe I should sue them. I should sue them for defamation. Guess what? I would win because this is a total misstatement of what I did. But who the hell wants to be distracted by that nonsense? It's more fun no. just to point out what, how dishonest they are. Steve, what a pleasure. Go now. Go back and hey. do your real job. Bye. Yeah, we have an important segment coming up right now. <laughs> Analysis of the main event, and that is the midterms. Biden, Trump and Obama were all on the trail this this weekend in Pennsylvania and throughout the country. But man, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. Will it make a difference? Joining me now, Eliana Johnson, editor in chief of The Washington Free Beacon and Chris Steyerwald, contributing editor at The Dispatch, now also senior fellow at the American Inter- Enterprise Institute. That's fun. And together they host the Ink Stained Wretches podcast. Eliana, Chris, welcome back to the show. Good to be with you. Do you care to comment on the ridiculousness of the New York Times, what you just heard? I mean, 
this sin of reporters like yours truly. Literally, all I said was about this SFPD. They're not sharing all the info. It was none of this conspiracy stuff about Paul Pelosi and his alleged relationship with the guy. And I and others are being accused of raising doubts that all facts had been disclosed. This gets you labeled a misinformation artist by the New York Times, guys. No, I find it so interesting, Megan, that reporters are uh, they're, they're supposed to question people in authority. And this piece is essentially uh, sliming those who dare to raise questions about what we don't know um, and of the narratives that we're getting from those in authority. In this case, from the San Francisco Police Department, you talked a little bit about um, what we've heard from them. And what we've gotten, frankly, is an incomplete picture of what happened here. And the idea that raising questions and asking for a fuller picture of what actually went on here, um, this is uh an important event that happened. It's important to the public. It's important to our understanding of politics. And the idea that asking to know more or suggesting that we don't have a full picture of it is akin to peddling disinformation or poisoning the politics, I think, um, is um, is far afield and really undercuts what journalists are supposed to be out there doing. Yeah, it's crazy to me. I mean, I I could see Salon doing a kind of piece like this. I, you know, that James Bennett came out after he got canned by The New York Times for running the Tom Cotton piece and said they want to be Mother Jones, which is a far left publication. And and an article like this shows they, they're becoming Mother Jones. And I, I realize to a lot of our listeners, there's no distinction between Mother Jones and The Times, but there used to be. And it was an important distinction. And it's it's fading away by the second. And it, it does matter. I, I, I it upsets me. All right, let's get to politics. Let's get to Pennsylvania, Mr. Steyerwalt, uh, where, OK, just looking at the latest real clear politics average of all polling as of today. I think this is the latest. Hold on. Oh, this is the updated. Um, it shows Oz up zero point one. Which is somewhat significant because he's been (laughs) behind by, you know, little percentage points all along. But now it shows him up zero point one. So where does that race stand in your view right now? Well, I it stands as a total toss up and we don't know who is going to be coming out to vote in what numbers and who has been coming out to vote in what numbers. We know this is an extraordinarily high turnout election. Uh, We have lots of evidence in polling and also in the participation in early and absentee voting that. Both parties are highly energized. Everybody's turning out to vote. And these races are going to tip on a relatively small number of persuadable voters. And in Pennsylvania, like in Georgia, a lot of those are going to be ticket splitters, right? How many people who uh, in Pennsylvania, the Republican gubernatorial candidate, Doug Mastriano, is sucking wind. He is uh, the, the bottom fell out for him a while ago. Yeah. So Josh Shapiro is uh, riding high in Pennsylvania and seems like he is bound uh, to keep the governor's mansion there blue. How many of those folks? FYI. Yeah. How many of those folks are going to switch over and vote for Oz? How many of those folks are going to stay on the Democratic column and vote for Fetterman? I guess here's how I would think about Pennsylvania. And I would say the same about Georgia, uh, Arizona and Nevada, which is there's going to be a breeze. We don't know which direction the breeze is going to go. And most of the races, and this is true in the House too, are going to flop in the same direction. The polls will be wrong. We don't know by how much, and we don't know in which direction. And so mm-hmm. we'll just be waiting for those first votes to start coming in in Virginia and elsewhere to see what the climate is really like. So for Pennsylvania, it's a toss-up. It's a pure D toss-up. 
Meanwhile, Fetterman continues to give interviews and go out on the campaign trail, and he makes no more sense than he made at that debate. In fact, I think you could make the case that he's getting less sensible. Like, I don't I don't even understand half of his sound bites, and I'm trying to. I'm trying to give the guy a fair shot. I understand he's been through something traumatic. Um, I'll give you as, as one example. He gave an interview on CNN uh, on Tuesday of last week. This one had escaped my notice, but I bring it to you here. Listen. Well, let's talk about inflation because that's a big concern for voters. What do you think the biggest cause of inflation is? And should the Biden administration be doing more? No, I, I just do. I, I think that uh, that simply is also we have this talk about the trillions in, in massive tax uh, tax uh, cuts to the corporate uh, tax structure as well. True. You know, trillions of dollars that have added to the deficit. And and now they still want to support those as well. True. I think in terms of being very serious about uh, addressing inflation is is making sure that those rates are brought back into a line with what they, they should have been, uh, where they're able to uh, fight uh, the, 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 the deficit. Is it over? Did it stop? I can't. I It's. Right. Sire Walt for the listening audience has got a face like he just had to eat a full lemon. It's not Oof. good. It's not good. It's upsetting. No. I, I, I have I have found uh, an interesting new piece of notoriety uh, because I was the analyst on screen after the Fetterman Oz debate. Uh, uh, we hosted it at News Nation. And I said it was hard to watch. And, of course, mm-hmm. some Republican clipped that into the first part of an ad that they put a bajillion dollars behind around Pennsylvania. So I've gotten to hear from all my Yinzer friends. I see you on TV 10 times a day. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's hard to watch. Right. John mm-hmm. Fetterman is hard to watch. And your heart goes out to the guy. You really feel for this person and you understand how for his personal narrative of redemption. And I'm going to fight my way back from this debilitating stroke and I'm going to do all this stuff. But if if you have the doubts that were raised in that debate. You look at that and you say, man, if Oz is just basically good enough, right? And you notice Oz had Susan Collins in uh, and some other, and I say this uh, without trying to be pejorative, squishy, moderate Republican uh, Mm -hmm. to come in and campaign with him uh, to tell suburbanites in, uh, in the Philly suburbs and in suburban Pittsburgh, hey, I'll be okay. I'll be cool. You can cross over. You can vote for Shapiro and come vote for me. Because with Fetterman doing this kind of sounding that way, uh, it it instills no confidence. All right. Here's my question for you, Eliana. When I when I look at the pretty solid support for Fetterman in the the polls, even after the debate, it's not like he cratered. He did not collapse. Um, I wonder whether this is Republicans January 6th, like they're like, look, this is an issue. Would, for the love of God, would you listen to this guy? But the Democratic faithful in Pennsylvania are like, eh, fine, he'll get over it. He looks like us. He kind of acts like us. And I can't relate to Dr. Oz at all. I don't even understand what planet he's on with the crudite and the Wegners and the drink <laughs> and the wine at the tailgate. Like, I don't get it. And I don't care. The John, like, I wonder whether it's that like you can get yourself as upset as you want about those weird sound bites. I'm still voting for him. Uh, well, a couple of things, Megan. We were joking around in the free vegan offices here and somebody said, you know, Biden must have gone out to suburban Philly. Uh, Biden and uh, former President Barack Obama were out there this weekend because Biden makes Fetterman look good by comparison. Uh, he's not exactly <laughs> speaking in complete sentences. Um, <laughs> so articulate. 
You know, I think the question you ask um, is a good one. It's true. Like, it's amazing that Fetterman has not cratered in the polls, but it does speak to the hyper polarized in- environment that we live in where, um, you know, 40 some percent of voters are voting Democrat no matter who's on the ticket, you know, uh, literally in the case of Fetterman this time. And the same is true of on, on the Republican side. There are very few persuadable voters. And to the question you raised, uh, people were making this argument about Fetterman after that disastrous debate performance. They were saying on Twitter, like, don't look at what you're seeing in this debate. He's a reliable Democratic vote and he has a hand that is able that he is able to raise or like, you know, to push mm-hmm. the button to cast a Democratic vote. And that is all that matters. Um, that was the narrative coming from top Democrats in the wake of that debate. You know, the, the New York Times podcast, The Daily, they had a, an interesting piece on the dynamic around Fetterman and how he's he's like what exactly what Dems were looking for. Somebody who could get the white working class vote in Pennsylvania that had previously voted Democrat, but went for Trump. And they needed somebody who acted like them and sounded like them and, you know, looked like them and dressed like them. Um, but and that's Fetterman. But he's pretty far left. <laughs> like he's not your he's not like a moderate Democrat. But you got to think of those guys, you know, those guys sitting there and they're looking at Dr. Oz and they're like, eh. I mean, I like Dr. Oz. Don't get me wrong, but I can see why he's not resonating with them. I'll give you an example on the other side. Here he is with his latest sort of elitist gaffe. This is really more like he's not from Pennsylvania and they know it. Um, made a mistake on the Steelers. I'll play the soundbite and then I'll tell you what, what the mistake was. It's SOT 8. Tomorrow morning when you awaken... I want you to contact 10 people. Do it at church. Do it before the Steelers game. Just find the time. And here's the question you're going to ask them. (laughs) Are you happy with the way America's going? Chris knows what the mistake was. This was on Saturday he said this. What was his mistake? Steelers have a bye week. They lost to the Eagles, and they've got a bye week. They don't play again until next week. Wow. That, yes. And he did that in Latrobe. He did that in Latrobe, and PA. Fetterman tweeted that's, it out immediately. And he's like, the Steelers have a bye week, bro. Can't do it, man. Can't do it. I. That's the thing. When the contest is over, look, if he were, if these two were having a campaign, uh, you know, uh, for Upper West Side voters, well, no, that doesn't work. But anyway, <laughs> my point is- <laughs> Well, here, here's the counterpoint. Here's the counterpoint, Megan. I think um, Fetterman would have been really helped. Um, He does look like a blue collar voter. He has that kind of attitude, but he hasn't actually been able to articulate a coherent message because of his issues on the issues uh, like inflation and like crime that are resonant in this race. And if you listen to Oz, um, though Oz has like a very John Kerry-esque wooden out of touch uh, quality and bearing to him, he has tried to portray Fetterman as the radical and Oz actually can deliver a message like he's able to talk. Mm-hmm. And so I think Fetterman really has um, been hurt. His campaign has been hurt by his inability to talk coherently about the issues that those blue collar voters he's trying to reach care about. Let, mm-hmm. let me offer one contrapoint to this, which is the Democrats had a really good nominee available to them. Connor Lamb. Connor Lamb, the congressman from Western Pennsylvania, would be beating Dr. Oz soundly if the Democrats had not given in to their emotionality and nominated Fetterman, who made them feel good, right? He had an attractive narrative. It was different. He's not a guy in a Brooks Brothers suit. He's something different and something special. And by the way, very progressive. And what the argument Fetterman made in the Democratic primary was, we can't send the squishy moderate to Washington. We need a bold progressive. 
And then after he had a stroke, the argument for him going was the same, right? We have to have John Fetterman because somebody, if, if the Democratic Executive Committee replaces him with Connor Lamb, button down Connor Lamb, it's no good for the working families of Pennsylvania. We've got to stay in this fight. And the truth is, by the time he got to that debate stage and subsequently, he sounds he's he's saying the same kinds of stuff that Connor Lamb would say, talking about getting the deficit under control, talking about his newfound love of fracking, talking about law enforcement and the need to get crime under control. So the tragedy of this and what's really evil, and I use the word advisedly here, are the consultants who continued to take millions of dollars uh, to keep John Fetterman in this race, uh, given from hardworking Americans, when what they should have told him months ago was, we can't be part of this. I understand why you can't, but the, the Democrats have a good candidate we can put on the ballot and win this race. And this is all hubris and greed. And it's very sad. Mm. We can't be part of this. Exactly right. It would have been such an interesting uh, race if we had, um, well, what it was originally supposed to be. Okay, let me jump because I want to talk about, it's reported in Axios. The full report is also available and I printed it out. Third way, uh, center left think tank backed by some of the biggest names in democratic politics, sounding the alarm, quoting now from Axios, sounding the alarm about deep seated party flaws based on its own new polling from Senate battlegrounds. So I pulled the report itself. This is not good. This is the Democratic introspective look a day in advance of the midterm saying we're screwed. They say if the Democrats manage to hold on to the House and Senate, it will be in spite of the party brand, not because of it. This is what Third Way itself is writing. Um, Despite a roster of GOP candidates who are extreme by any standard, voters see Democrats as just as extreme as well as far less concerned about the issues that most worry them. They go on to say um, they they are seen as out of touch on priorities, out of touch ideologically and out of touch on values. Democrats are underwater on issues voters name as their highest priorities, including the economy, immigration, crime uh, and voters question whether the party shares essential values like patriotism and the importance of hard work. Even in areas where Democrats are trusted more, including education, it is not clear that voters are sold on Democrats approach or ability to get things done. I find this fascinating. I, th- I, I agree with every word of it. I feel like we've, we've been seeing this. All my Democrat friends are complaining about all of this. And that's why they're ready to pull the lever for Lee Zeldin in New York, a state that hasn't gone blue in 240 years. No, they, it hasn't gone red. It has gone red. Not recent. So what do you make of the third way report, Starwalt? Uh, it, it, it's correct. And it's tracking with, uh, Liz Smith had a, uh, op-ed in the New York times, Sunday, New York times saying basically the same thing. Um, you've got to match candidates with voters, right? This is something Democrats used to understand, uh, the Rahm Emanuel D triple C era, certainly in the Bill Clinton era, which is every district in every state needs a different kind of Democrat. And there can't be a one size fits all progressive, uh, utopian approach to politics. You've got to size it right for the state. Joe Manchin uh, works as a Democrat in West Virginia, doesn't work in Oregon. That's that's one of the things about living in a republic. One of the other things, and I wrote about this in my column for today, which is Democrats have been hectoring the American people that democracy is on the ballot and a vote for any Republican. Speaking of how the New York Times did a category error and lumped you in with kooks, uh, mm-hmm. That's what they did in their report on election denialism in the Republican Party. They give away this huge report, 370 Republicans on the ballot this year, 
uh, election denialism, blah, 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 blah. You have to read two thirds of the way through the story when it's like, well, actually, uh, fewer than a third of them are actually of the rank kind. Some of them were people who said we should let the system work and had questions right, right. about mail-in ballots prior to January 6, 2021. But they just put everybody together to make a bigger number. That kind of approach and hectoring approach and trying to delegitimize Republicans and saying there's no difference between, you know, uh, uh, Carrie Lake and uh, Susan Collins, right? It's all just one party. Everybody's exactly the same. And they're all election deniers. Democrats think that American voters believe in them and have high confidence in them. Look at the Gallup numbers of this. 35%. The two parties are tied. The American people have 35% approval for both of these parties. Not good guys. And Democrats need to understand where they are with voters and who they are really, really. And this own look, Eliana says, most of these voters, because they, they're polling Democrats, Republicans and independents. This is not just them polling Democrats. And they're saying most people ideologically fall. You know, I always talk about it, too, between like a one and a 10 or this was zero to 10. Zero is like the far left libs. The 10 is the far left uh, conservatives. And they say most of these people would average out to a 5.8. And this Democrat report acknowledges the country's center right. It's 5.8 and that they do see Democrats as extreme and they see the Republicans as extreme, but they are closer. They think the Republicans are less extreme than they think the Democrats are They're, They see themselves as clo- more closely aligned with the Republicans. And then they do care greatly about inflation, about the economy, about immigration, about crime. They are against Biden's student loan forgiveness. They think the Democrat Party is too woke and too preachy by majorities. So this is like their own. What was her name? Jackie Spamberger moment. You remember, she was the Virginia Democrat. It was like, what are we talking about? Defund the police. We're going to get killed. Right. Um, in any event. So this is them saying all that. And and Starwalt makes the point about crime. And at this point, it's making the point they care about crime. Like, this is a real issue. Stop talking about fucking democracy. Like, just make a point about you're going to live and your family's going to live. <laughs> Listen to what Bill Clinton, the off message, had to say about this uh, this this past weekend. 18. Lee Salzman, she makes it, he makes it sound like Kathy Hobo gets up every morning, goes to the nearest subway stop, and hands out billy clubs and baseball bats. Everybody gets on the subway. While he. And for the listening audience, he said, well, he, meaning Zeldin, and then he made like big muscle arms as if, as if Lee Zeldin. Just to correct Abigail Spamberger, not Jackie. Uh, so they're not getting it. The, their party is telling them, please try to get it. Please get on message. It's not happening. Right. I think the bigger question, the the third way analysis is, uh, you know, is obviously on point. But the bigger question is, will anybody in the Democratic Party listen? And it's funny that you mentioned Abigail Spanberger, who uh, your reference was to what she told her colleagues after uh, Republicans made far bigger gains than expected in 2020 in congressional races. And she she told them, stop talking about defunding the police. Uh, you know, there have been voices who have who have tried to speak up and 
and they have not, uh, you know, their calls for moderation have not really been heeded. The other person who comes to mind is David Shore, the progressive data analyst who worked in the Obama, uh, who worked on President Obama's campaigns, who has tried to tell his fellow Democrats um, that they are perceived as radicals and need to rein it in. But it doesn't seem to me that the powers that be in the party, um, be they um, in the Biden White House um, or in Senate leadership or in House leadership, have been able to quiet um, the younger and more voluble left wing flank of the party that, by the way, uh, controls a lot of district attorney's offices who control crime uh, all over, mm. or, you know, who have a lot of say over how crime is um, handled and prosecuted all over the country um, and many others at the state level. You played a clip of Bill Clinton campaigning for Governor Kathy Hochul um, and mocking voters concerns about crime. Um, that's not going to uh, be helpful, I don't think, in in that race. Um, but uh, the far bigger question to me is, is there an audience uh, ready to hear this message in the party? Mm. Then is the message correct? That's a very good question, because the, the reason when I flew back from Detroit, um, I, I flew in last night and our our airport bags, they got to it's a long story. I did carry on for those of who are worried about my air plants, luggage disaster. But then it's a long story. It had to come through the luggage terminal delivery thing anyway. We're standing there. We've got 45 minutes extra delayed because Biden was landing. Why was Biden landing? Because he was going to Yonkers to give a speech, I think, at Sarah Lawrence. Um, why is he doing that on behalf of Governor Hochul to, to keep her job? Because they have no young people who are excited by this Democratic Party. They're already like the numbers amongst Democrats in terms of enthusiasm and the young people are at terrifyingly low levels. So you raise a good question. What what would happen if they went out there and told them the truth? <laughs> what if they actually said all the stuff that Third Way is telling them to say? I don't know that the numbers would go up, Chris. Well, I mean, there's also a, a, another reason why Joe Biden was campaigning at Sarah Lawrence College. Uh, it's he can't do any harm there. Uh, the, <laughs> the places where uh, I mean, they sent Kamala Harris to campaign in Boston. Now, if they send you if you're a Democrat and they send you to Boston, before a midterm election. This is not a vote of confidence. They, this is not your party saying, you got it. You are a, you're a powerhouse. Game changer. Uh, they've been looking for places to put Biden to keep him busy uh, and do stuff Florida. either in races that are, that are lost, like Florida, yeah. right? Uh, you know, uh, Val Demings is going to lose. Rick Scott is, or not Rick Scott, uh, Charlie Crist. Charlie Crist is going to set a record. I believe he is the only person to have lost statewide office under three different uh, party banners as a Democrat, uh, a Republican and an independent. So congratulations, oh, Charlie Chris. Yeah, good you've for done him. it. Um, but Sarah Lawrence College ain't a hotbed of nothing, uh, except, <laughs> except for probably a lot of the woke, uh, you know, overeducated, blah, blah, blah. Um, so this is kind of stashing Biden someplace so that he can so feel busy. Yeah. So this is not the place to walk in, though, and say we've really got to secure the border. We need to fund the police. We've got to get rid of this no cash bail nonsense. We've got <laughs> this is not. Yeah, and, I get it. We, and the thing we is that Biden, when he was in his prime, uh, could carry that message. I mean, he mangled it frequently, but he could carry it. And the reason that he was on the Democratic ticket in 2008 was because voters like that, people who John Fetterman says that he can reach in Pennsylvania. Uh, people that Lee Zeldin says he can reach in New York, uh, the middle of the middle class, uh, a lot of white working class voters in the country believed Joe Biden. And he had a message that he could carry. But a lot of the story of his struggles and the Democrat struggles in this cycle are about a wasted year and a half 
that Biden engaged in sucking up to the progressive left in his party, uh, trying to get renominated in 2024 and trying to appease people who are never going to be appeased. They will, okay, they now, will not subject, be appeased. Yeah, Chris they will, they will never be appeased. Chris Darwell has an interesting predict- prediction about what is likely to happen to Joe Biden on Wednesday. On Wednesday, that is where we will pick it up after a very quick break and a quick return. Eliana and Chris, stay with us. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Oh, joy. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private, free consultation or visit tnusa.com Megan. Before we go to predictions and so on, I want to ask you about New York. So interesting. So many big names coming to New York State. Um, Trafalgar has Zeldin up by one, but another poll has her up. I don't know, by a lot, like nine. I can't remember style up, but is New York, is this a Lucy with the football situation or does Zeldin actually have a chance? So, um, you know the truth that these races are all interconnected, right? That the, there is going to be a temperature in the country uh, that is somewhere between a, maybe think of it this way. There are possibilities for a Republican real wave wave. Uh, that's the best case scenario for Republicans is a wave wave. But then there's a ripple that flips enough just over the edge, right? It's They win a bunch of close races with a little breeze behind them. Uh, so a ripple that gets them a bunch of seats and a majority in the Senate. Uh, and then there's the, the, uh, the converse on the other side for Democrats. Um, which of those scenarios will tell us a lot? Now, New York has a different story to tell because in the case of New York, there isn't another big race on the ballot, right? There isn't some Senate race that's driving the discussion. And yes, there are certainly competitive House races in New York, no doubt. But the New York City doesn't have anything to go vote for, right? There isn't a, their their issues, of course, are settled uh, uh, in the primaries. So this isn't a, a, a an election that really involves New York City. So weird stuff can happen. Uh, I would say that Hochul is uh, Hochul is Hochul. favored. Uh, I would give her the edge, but not by much. And it wouldn't take much of a good Republican climate uh, to put Zeldin in. Mm. Eliana, nobody voted for her. I mean, she's lieutenant governor, was and now is the governor, but nobody voted for her. I think that the New York Democrats would be much more motivated if Andrew Cuomo were still on the ballot. I realize they got rid of him and supported that and the whole thing. But speaking of Janice Dean again, um, but she's just not she's not an Obama She's not a Cuomo. She's totally uninspiring. She's pretty wooden. And there's something happening in New York. Like you see the Zeldin signs everywhere. I went upstate New York to visit my mom everywhere. And, you know, we're in the suburbs of Albany, which is blue. Most of upstate New York is largely red. Albany's blue. So I don't know. I I feel like something could happen for him tomorrow, notwithstanding that latest poll that showed her way ahead. 
I do think she's struggling from never having been at the top of the ticket before. Uh, she doesn't have the political skills, obviously, of somebody who's run um, an intense, high-profile race. And that's clear. And the other thing I think she's really suffering from is um, being a Democrat in New York, where you don't really face formidable Republican opponents too often. And she clearly, and you can hear it in her campaign messages and in the messages of the surrogates, you played Bill Clinton coming to stump for her. Um, they're not not used to running in highly competitive races. And I think the whole mm. infrastructure of the state reflects that. And she's on her back heels as a result of both of those things. It's tough when, you know, every other day someone's getting shoved in front of a subway train. To, like, it's just <laughs> fine. You're good. No, enjoy New York. Love the Big Apple. Um, okay, so we at the top of the hour, we were joined uh, by Tiffany Smiley in Washington State and uh, Tudor Dixon, who's running for governor in, in Michigan. I'll ask your take on those two races, Chris. Do you think either one of those women has a real chance? Well, it's certainly uh, a better chance in Michigan. Uh, Whitmer has been divisive. Uh, Whitmer ha and, and Michigan is a lot more Republican uh, in, in its demographic makeup uh, than Washington is. And I, so I'll put it this way. We're talking about waves. Uh, for the wave to be strong enough uh, to take out Patty Murray in Washington, the Republicans would have, a, they'd be looking at 57 seats, 58 seats, Ooh. because there's Ooh. a lot of other states that would have, there's a lot of other uh, races that would come in before that one. That is a You're big talking reach. tidal wave. Yeah. And, and and I don't think the Republicans are heading for a uh, veto proof <laughs> or a filibuster proof majority in the Senate. Oh, my God. I don't think so. But <laughs> in Michigan, look, here's the thing. Voters treat gubernatorial races. And this is true in New York and it's true in Michigan. It's true in a lot of places. The most uh, Vermont, Massachusetts and Maryland, very Democratic states, all have Republican governors. Why? Yeah. Because voters are able to di to disassociate. Uh, their votes on state issues from federal issues. They don't mind sending a kook to Washington, right? They don't mind sending a weirdo to Washington because it gets them out of their hair. But then when they say, oh, I got to deal with this person, this person's going to be in charge of making sure the snow plows run and the, the schools open and all of that stuff, it's a different thing. So there is an opportunity here for Republicans. Uh, I think Tudor Dixon has a chance. I would favor Whitmer, certainly, but I think she's got a chance depending on uh, whether it's a ripple or a wave. Mm hmm. Right. Are we, are we talking title? Are we talking just a great wave for surfing? Or are we talking a little ripple that you would even <laughs> let your toddler swim in uh, or nothing at all? Maybe it's going to be nothing at all. I doubt that, though. Uh, so, Eliana, what, what do we think in terms of like last week, the week before the trend started to go heavily towards Republicans, the Democrats advantage that they would built up over the summer after Dobbs in the wake of the Trump Mar-a-Lago stuff? They were doing so much better. Then we get to September and the bottom fell out so far, you know, one day before the election. I don't see a trend the other way. I don't think the Paul Pelosi thing, like nothing in advance of this election day has shifted the tide back to blue. Or am I missing something? I think that's right. Um, and just to uh, piggyback on what you and Chris were talking about, about these races in Michigan and Washington state, one of the thing I, things I think is really interesting is that Republicans um, struggled with candidate quality, which is why you heard a lot of um, downbeat Republicans in June, July, August. Uh, you know, I think they thought Dr. Oz wasn't the greatest candidate. Blake Masters wasn't the great, greatest candidate in Arizona and worried that um, races they considered win winnable were now imperiled. One of the really interesting things is 
they fielded fantastic candidates for these really reach seats. I would include Tiffany Smiley out in Washington, who put seats on the map that like we would have never even been talking about in a normal year. And the other one I would mention is Joe O'Day in Colorado. Um, that's a really difficult race, but the candidate quality in some of these like very high level of difficulty races for Republicans is really quite good. Um, mm -hmm. And I would keep keep an eye on those seats because the candidates are better um, in those seats than in some of the tightest races. Uh, and I think that will be an interesting dynamic to watch tomorrow. All right. Now, Star, well, what happens on Wednesday if the red wave comes? Title, surfer or toddler can swim in the ocean. Yeah, Any one of those. What happens to Biden? Uh, well, I mean, look, they're going to blame Joe Biden. Um, and that's that's a fact uh, because they were not happy with him in the first place. Uh, and they were blaming him uh, in the springtime when they were unhappy. Uh, they'll blame him again. And he's going to have some very hard choices to make. He's a proud man. Uh, and he's going to have some very hard choices to make. He says he's determined that he wants to run again. But he hasn't made a, a final decision. But if Democrats take a shellacking, if they, if they get knouted, uh, it's going to be hard for him to convince his party that he's the guy. He's going to he's going to run. He's going to be run right out of town and run right yeah. out of that ticket. <laughs> and this is not going to be the run he expects. Last question. Uh, Trump, Ron DeSanctimonious. Uh, Ron DeSantis fans didn't like it. Trump reportedly, I take it with a huge grain of salt because it comes from Gabe Sherman, who in my experience at Fox, 50 percent of the time was right on the money. 50 percent of the time was completely making shit up. Uh, but he's saying that uh, that Trump, um, <laughs> oh, that DeSantis has been telling donors he will not challenge Trump if Trump runs, that if Trump runs, he will not. So what do you make of Ron DeSanctimonious and Trump seeing to try to elbow Ron out of this thing? I think uh, DeSantis would be a formidable opponent for Trump. And uh, he's tough. Uh, he's smart and he's disciplined. Uh, and it would be quite a race. And Trump knows it. Okay. And I think the, the reason he's under his skin is because of that. All right, I got to leave it at that because I got to I got to run. But it was always a, it's always been a pleasure and it will continue to be a pleasure. And I thank you both. We got you covered tomorrow. In addition to our regular show, we will be live on Sirius Triumph Channel and YouTube tomorrow night starting at nine. See you then. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda and no fear. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.